0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 15, Genesis chapters 14 and 15. You know, it's amazing what becomes clear when we put the Jewishness that was removed like an inflamed appendix out of the Bible. Uh, back into the Bible. And a prime example of this is the story we've been looking at of Abraham and Melchizedek, we say, but it's really Melchizedek. The the traditional Roman and Western church's answer to who is Melchizedek has been that he was Jesus. Much like the way the church also suggests that any time a human attribute is ascribed to God, like when he was walking in the Garden of Eden during the time of Adam, that it must have been Jesus. Right, now, I don't want to get too far into that, and I certainly don't want to sound at all dogmatic about my views, because this side of heaven, this deal is a real mystery. But I must admit I'm not convinced at all by the church tradition in this matter. This matter, rather, um, long ago, a great Hebrew scholar, Maimonides, the Rambam, stated what is obvious if one will simply read the Scriptures. All the human-like descriptions of Yahweh's thoughts and actions are figurative, not literal. Yahweh doesn't jump with joy. He doesn't swing a glittering sword over his head. He doesn't come down to earth to see what's happening and then turns around and travels back up to think about it for a little while. God doesn't even have emotions the way we think of them. Not in the terms that we think of it. He doesn't get angry and then he gets sad. And he isn't happy one moment and then just pleased the next. And he doesn't seek pleasure. He doesn't need to be reminded of anything, although we'll see the word reminded many times in the Bible. Yahweh is spirit. He's not a man that he should change. And the reason those figurative words are used is because there is simply no other way for us to communicate about Him. Words as we think of words and communication as we think of communication are strictly products of the physical and material world. There are no spirit words, so to speak, that are formed by lips that exist for a human to speak or communicate to another human being human being to human being. Everything that we used to describe the attributes of God are insultingly inadequate. Okay? But we got to use something. We have to have some way. The same thing goes for ascribing the figurative statements of God to Yeshua just because at some momentous time in history of the world, some essence of the supreme being called Yahweh, was made into flesh and blood and placed on planet Earth. If Yeshua was every human form that was convenient for some purpose in any and every era, then the fact that the Messiah Jesus had to come from the line of David and he had to be born of a virgin has its meaning awfully watered down. As concerns the errant belief that Yeshua was Melchizedek, Melchizedek fits none of those parameters. And if Jesus and Melchizedek were actually one and the same, then the rather lengthy homily that we read last week in Hebrews would have been the perfect place to explain that the parallels drawn between the two were because they were the same guy. And no such thing was ever said. Now consider this the Shekinah, the Shekinah, was a physical manifestation of sorts, was it not? For it was sometimes in the form of a visible cloud or a pillar of fire. Are we to assume that the Shekinah was also Jesus because it had a physical attribute to it? What about those other visible manifestations that the Bible calls the angel of the Lord? Yet when that term is used, the angel of the Lord, it's never a messenger or a go-between which is typically the occupation of an angel, right? but rather it seems to be the very presence of God with full power and divine authority and even refers to himself as God or Yahweh. Right? So is the angel of the Lord also Jesus. How about the visible finger of God that wrote the stone on the stone tablets for Moses and said his name was yud Yahweh, Was that not quite the truth? Was it actually Yeshua? How about the burning bush on Mount Sinai? That was tangible and seeable, so was that Yeshua too? You get my point. We've got to be careful with these things. We shouldn't, in my opinion, run around subscribing the name and person of Yeshua to every divine manifestation that seems to have a human or simply material characteristic ascribed to it. Jesus, Yeshua, was the name given to a specific man born at a precise time in history in a precise set of circumstances for an exacting purpose Savior. That this man Jesus of Nazareth is also the Son of God and is God and is Messiah, is solid biblical truth. However, there are no biblical words or thoughts that Jesus came at some earlier number of times in other forms. This seems to me to just be a, a rather pained defense of a rather long-held Gentile church tradition that tends to oversimplify the very complex and infinite spiritual realities that go well beyond our abilities to comprehend. And does so in a way that packages these things neatly and cleanly. So there's never gray areas. In fact, the scriptures that emphatically state that in the future, Jesus is going to come for a second time in and of itself rules out the notion that he's been here several other times because in order to come a second time, you had to have been here once. (coughs) So without necessarily my advocating that Shem was Melchizedek, it certainly would make a lot of sense and I think is a better choice than it probably being Jesus. First, Shem was still alive at this time. As a matter of fact, Shem outlived Abraham. As a matter of fact, he outlived Isaac. Second of all, the land of Canaan, which is where Shalem the city that Melchizedek was the king and priest over was located was a very pagan place, this area was. And, and yet here in the midst of all this paganness, here is this man who speaks of the God Most High, the God Abraham was just beginning to get to know, and he speaks with him with a deep understanding of the one true God, yet he never makes himself to be God. And third, Abraham seemed to know who this man was. And he had the deepest reverence for him. In fact, Melchizedek's presence seems just kind of of matter-of-fact to Abraham. Um, And expected, without any explanation at all, Abraham gives one-tenth of all the recovered property to this man. And by the way, be careful not to attach the tithing label to this as we of the church think of it today. This tenth that was given was standard payment, due a king for the spoils of war. This was a one-time payment. This was not an ongoing obligation. Now, let's bring some other scriptural mention of Melchizedek into play and follow that line of inquiry. The next mention of Melchizedek after Genesis is in the Psalms. I'd like you to turn there with me to Psalms 110. Psalms one ten Psalms one ten and we're going to take a look at verses one through four. A psalm of David. Adonai, actually, says Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Adonai will send your powerful scepter out from Zion so that you will rule over your enemies around you. On the day your forces mobilize, your people willingly offer themselves in holy splendors from the womb of the dawn. The dew of your youth is yours. Adonai has sworn it, and he will never retract it. You are a priest forever to be compared with Malachi's Tzedek. Now, of course, this old this Old Testament scripture script, uh, scripture reference is to the future Messiah. And he speaks of him as being of the order of, or in other versions, as compared to Melchizedek. Well, what does that mean? What is compared to, or the order of? What's that getting at? Well, the word translated "order of" in Hebrew is dibrah. All right, D-I-B-R-A-H, dibrah, and it has the sense of meaning in the manner of, or similar in intent. So the Messiah being of the manner of Melchizedek means that the Messiah would be both a high priest and a king, just as was Melchizedek, something that was rare, by the way, but not unheard of in Bible times. But it also likely meant that there was some genealogical connection. So we have the original story of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. We have a follow-up in the Psalms about 900 years later. And then in the New Testament in Hebrews 7, which we read about, all about last week, about 1,900 years later, right, more of Melchizedek's attributes are brought out and they all connect. Now here's the thing the order of or the manner of Melchizedek is all about a very special priestly system that the Messiah is going to bring in. The priestly system will be higher than the Levite priesthood because this priest will also be a king. Now, as of the time of this story, Abraham and Melchizedek, there was no Levite priesthood. Because there weren't even even any Levites yet. The Levite clan wasn't going to come for at least 200 more years from the time of the story. And then at least 400 years after that, the Levite priesthood would begin with Aaron, brother of Moses, who would become the first high priest of Israel. No earthly priest was to ever be higher than the high priest of Israel. It was the high priest alone who could enter the Holy of Holies in the temple and once per year go in there to meet God. But the priesthood that Melchizedek represented was of a type higher than the Levitical high priesthood. It was representative of the type of priesthood that the Messiah himself would have before God, perpetual and it includes kingship. So what can we say in conclusion about Melchizedek? He was a real man. He was the high priest and king of the city of Shalem that possibly eventually became called Jerusalem. He was a type of Christ, but he was not the Christ. He was a shadow of the Messiah that was to come, and very likely he was Shem, son of Noah. Well, let's look at the last part now, of chapter 14. Let's let's reread Genesis 14 from verse 17 to the end. Genesis 14 verse 17 to the end. Genesis 14 verse 17. After his return from slaughtering Kederlomer and the kings with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shabbat valley also known as the King's Valley. Melchizedek, king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine. He was Cohen. he was priest, of El Elyon, God Most High. So he blessed him with these words. Blessed be Avram by El Elyon, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon, who handed your enemies over to you. Avram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Saddam said to Avram, Give me the people, And keep the goods for yourself. But Avram answered the king of Saddam, I have raised my hand in an oath to Adonai el Elyon, maker of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a thread or a sandal thong of anything that's yours, so that you won't be able to say, it is I that made Avram rich. I will take only what my troops have eaten and the share of the spoil belonging to the men who came with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre." Let them have their share. Well, <clears throat> Melchizedek is either delusional or he bears great authority and understanding of just who God is. Because he, prom- he pr- rather pronounces that Abraham is blessed by El Elyon and that El Yon is to be blessed. Abraham offers utterly no response that was written as he seems to know exactly to whom he is submitting, and so he gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Now, the king, the ruler of Saddam, says to Abraham, give me the people, you keep the loot. Now, why would he say such a thing? First, the king of Saddam had authority over that recovered loot. It was his to keep or to give away. Yet it's obvious in some way or another Melchizedek had an even greater authority than that king because part of that 10% that Abraham gave to Melchizedek resided in the things that belonged to the king of Saddam. And the king didn't protest one whit. Understand, understand, The king of Saddam was king over perhaps the most wicked city in all of Canaan, if not the world at that time. This guy was evil, and he was under the control of evil. The king of Saddam is a type of Satan, what we might call an antichrist. Just as Melchizedek was righteous under the control of righteousness and is a type of Christ. Okay. This, this whole scene here all right, is reminiscent of Jesus' encounter with Satan. When Satan said, just bow down to me. And I have the authority to give you incomparable wealth. All the wealth of the world, if you want it. All right. And just as Abraham never challenged the king of Saddam's authority and possession of Of all that recovered wealth, neither did Yeshua challenge Satan's authority over all the material wealth of the world. Neither Abraham nor Jesus has said, it's not yours to give, because in fact, it was the prince of evils to give. Notice also that Satan was eager to give away as much wealth as it took. To get Yeshua to, in essence, not redeem humanity. And instead allow the devil to keep the people. Okay, This is a parallel to the king of Saddam saying to Abraham, Keep all the wealth you recovered, just give me the people you saved. You see this parallel growing here? Now, we talked a lot about God's principles. Well, here's a Satan principle. Does Satan want your wealth or does he want you? Satan could care less about material possessions. He wants to own your soul. In the end, the battle between Satan and Yahweh is over people. Anyway... Abraham rebuffs the king, understanding exactly who it is he's dealing with. And he tells him no thanks. And besides, says Abraham, I don't want you as a representative of the evil one to ever be able to say that my abundance has anything to do with you. Whatever I have, be it little or much, comes from God, and I don't want whatever it is you can offer me. Now boy, is that a wise lesson for all of us. I mean, the most important characteristic of anything is not what it is, it's the source it came from. Let's go on to chapter 15. Chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Sometime later, the Word of God and I came to Avram in a vision. Now, don't be afraid, Avram. I'm your protector. Your reward will be very great. Avram replied, Adonai God, what good will your gifts be to me if I continue childless? Listen, Eliezer from Damasek, Damascus, inherits my possessions. You haven't given me a child. Avram continued, so someone born in my house will be my heir. But the word of Adonai came to him, this man, will not be your heir. No, your heir will be a child from your own body. Then he brought him outside and said, look up into the sky, Abraham, and count the stars, if you can count them. Your descendants will be that many. And he believed in Adonai, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And Adonai said to him, I am Adonai, who brought you out from Ur-Kasdim, to give you this land as your possession. He replied, God, how am I to know that I'm going to possess it? And he answered him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, and he cut the animals in two. And he placed the pieces opposite each other, but he didn't cut the birds in half. Birds of prey swooped down, on the carcasses, but Avram drove them away. Now, as the sun was about to set, a deep sleep fell on Avram, horror and a great darkness came over him. Adonai said to Avram, know this for certain, your descendants will be foreigners in a land that's not theirs. They will be slaves and held in oppression there 400 years. But I will judge that nation the one that makes them slaves, and afterwards they will leave with many possessions. As for you, you will join your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Only in the fourth generation will your descendants come back here, because only then will the Amorites be ripe right for punishment. Now, after the sun had set and there was a thick darkness, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared, which passed between these animal parts. That day, Adonai made a covenant with Avram. I give this land to your descendants, from the Wadi of Egypt the, to the great river, the Euphrates, the territory of the Kenai, the Kenizi, the Kadmoni, the Hittai, the Prizai, the and the Emari, the Kenani, the Girgashi, and the Avusi. Well, <coughs> How true it is that after we have visited that victorious mountaintop, we can easily slide down into the valley of despair below. Abraham, sometime after this great victory over Kerdalomer, was allowing his fears to surface. And here he was in wicked Canaan, outnumbered thousands to one. realizing that even though he had a substantial and growing family, that it was the result primarily of the births of his female slaves. Plus, his hold on the land was tenuous at best. Now, besides, like Abraham says, how is Abraham going to have all these descendants to inherit the land God promised if he didn't even have children? Abraham wonders in verse 2 if his purchased servant, Eleazar, whom we're told is from Damascus, Damascus, Syria, is going to wind up as the sole inheritor when Abraham dies. So verse 1 begins with the words, sometime later. So we don't know just exactly how long it was after this battle with the kings of Mesopotamia and the rescue of Lot, that this episode that begins at verse 1 of chapter 15 takes place. However, it would appear that it wasn't very long at all. Um, Fear not, God says to Abraham. Fear? What exactly was the fear Avram was experiencing? I mean, had he not just flexed his muscles and defeated those northern armies? It was the fear that those kings would come back. To take retribution because of Abraham smiting them. I mean, after all, it was not only a humiliating defeat for these powerful kings of the north, but the guy who beat them wasn't even harmed by what they had done. I mean, they had not come down to make war with Abraham. They had done nothing to Abraham except to unknowingly capture a relative who lived far away from where Abraham was. So God, knowing Abraham's fears, goes on to explain that he's going to protect him and even reward Abraham. Reward him? Reward him for what? For refusing to be enriched by the evil king of Saddam. For choosing to place his faith in Melchizedek's God. Okay. Avram apparently was kind of rethinking his idealistic and principled refusal to accept all that he had liberated from right? and had returned to the king of Sodom except for that 10% he gave to Melchizedek. Avram would have been instantly an even wealthier man if he simply would have accepted the ruler of Saddam's most generous offer. But the worry wart continues to wring his hands. Okay? And in a really revealing and unflattering dialogue, Abraham starts pouring out his fears and suspicions and anxieties to Yahweh. You know, he doesn't easily accept God's promises to him. Now, we, you and me, we wouldn't never do that, would we?. <laughs> I mean, God says, I'm going to do thus and so for you. But how often do we we respond, yeah, God, but how? I mean, how are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? It sure doesn't look like it's happening, or there's any evidence that it ever will. Yes, Avram may have been God's man, but he was still just a man, just a man. So after being assured that God will protect him from these bad boys from the north, and then further be assured that his prosperity is going to be further increased, God promises Abraham the thing he's most worried about, an heir, a son. Now, in all fairness, we of the modern Western world just can't grasp the importance of a son as an heir to a man in that era. Because it wasn't just a matter of passing on wealth and animals and land holdings. To Abraham, to Avram, to virtually all humans of the known civilizations of that time, the belief was that a man lived on through his heir. Not so much reincarnation, all right, but as that ethereal substance that was invisible and unknowable, that which makes each person a unique individual, that life force that's contained within the bloodlines of that family, that it was carried forward through human reproduction. That in some mysterious, undefined way, the fundamental nature of the father lived on in his son. For a man to die without an heir meant an end to his family line, and therefore an end to his own human essence. So for a woman to be able to be unable to give her husband a son was the most shameful thing to her. Her primary reason for existence as a human female was to produce an heir for her husband. So to fail at that was tantamount to being useless. For people in Abraham's day, there was no concept of dying and going to heaven and living with God for an eternity. A son was Abraham's only hope of seeing all of God's promises realized, and he was very well aware of that. So Yahweh tells Abraham that he will be a father. That Eliezer will not have to be the inheritor of the family wealth. And Abraham is encouraged when God tells him to look up into the night sky and count the stars because that's how numerous his descendants are going to be. And then in verse 6, we're told something that so many modern believers are just so sure it was only a New Testament promise, one brought by Yeshua. It says, he, Abraham, believed God. Can God credit it to him as righteousness? Here was the essence of God's plan of salvation. Trust God and God will credit it to us as righteousness. This is the very meaning of grace. Grace was Adam's hope. It was Noah's hope and it was Abraham's. Grace was the foundation of the Torah given to Moses. And it's the foundation of the new covenant in Jesus it's precisely our hope today it's never been any different now we see that the, <coughs> pardon me that the matter of abraham's heir has been addressed at least abraham thinks so so abraham brings up the matter of the promised land in verse 7 and he says and god says to, in response to him look abraham I brought you up from Ur to this place to give it to you. In other words, don't you get it yet? What do you think this has all been about, Abraham? You're going to get the land. Nothing can prevent it because I've decided it. And that's it. Then Abraham asks in verse 8 a very curious question that smacks of the highest skepticism if not downright distrust and he says well gee God how am I to know I'll possess the land whoa gee dad I don't believe you prove it and I say curious because God had at an earlier time already promised the land to Abraham did Abraham actually not believe Yahweh I mean The fact is, Abraham's faith was wavering. Now, how many times do we in our spirits just know that God's spoken to us? But time goes by and there's no further visible, tangible confirmation of the subject of that conversation. So we begin to wonder, was my imagination just working over time, Or did God really speak to me? I mean, we've all been there. That's where Abraham was. But let's get practical. The fact is, by all custom and tradition of humans in Abraham's era, promises that were real had structure. Okay? That shouldn't be surprising to us. Our promises today also have structure. It's called a contract. Okay? In our society, there is precious little that we will accept as legitimate or trustworthy from another person, unless it's put to paper, unless it's made to fit the laws of our civil code, and then it's signed by all the involved parties. That's just how we do it. Nobody questions why. Why, do, why did we adopt that way? Okay, It was the same thing in Abraham's day. There was a procedure when a promise was made, and that procedure had not in, had not yet been carried out. All right. In God's promise to Avram. Now, we may not realize it. but we perfectly well expect to deal with God in our cultural terms. what good is it for God to give us Americans a proof or a word in a form that only a Japanese person would recognize for what it is? It would mean nothing to us. The same thing goes in, reserve, in reverse. A person living in the Sudan is going to need a proof or a word from God that he understands. Something that's normal and customary in his Sudanese society. Not something that would seem normal for us Americans. Okay, Avram was waiting for the promise of God to be put into a structure that he recognized as valid. God's merciful. So what happens next is that a visible form of a covenant-making procedure done within the cultural norms for that time is performed. Okay? I say visible because Abraham could see it with his own eyes and it was recognizable for what it was. Okay? And I also say visible because when God speaks and makes a promise... It already is a covenant far superior to anything that can be written down or sealed by means of any ritual. The fabric of space and time is altered when God makes a covenant. All the universe is reshaped and focused around that covenant. That's not an allegory, it's not a poem, it's the absolute reality of the situation. There doesn't have to be a human procedure in order for his promises to become a legal covenant. Yahweh did this procedure with Abraham to give Abraham peace about it. So God, in his graciousness, lowered himself and performed the standard human covenant ritual done in the Middle East in those days as a sign to Abraham of the validity of those promises of the land and the blessing of a son and descendants. Now, in verses 9 and 10, we see a typical covenant ceremony being performed. And it revolves around the use of animals as agents for the promise. These animals, clean animals, are killed. They're cut into pieces. All right? And they're separated into two groups. Remember, the Hebrew word for covenant is Brit, which means cutting or dividing. Now I want to be careful in my terminology here. And I'd like you to notice that first of all this covenant ceremony was not a sacrifice. Okay? These animals were not sacrifices and they weren't sacrificed okay? in the strict sense of the word. There was no altar, there was no burning up of the animals, This was not a presentation of a gift or the seeking of acceptance or a plea for atonement to God by Abraham. Rather, this whole thing was God's gift to man. This was God raising his right hand and swearing upon himself to be true to his oath. This is a 100% God deal. Abraham was simply the recipient of a promise. God promised a national identity to a people who didn't even exist yet. All right? A people who at first would be called Hebrew and then eventually Israel. Now, Ancient records of various Middle and Far Eastern peoples are full of these types of covenant ceremonies. Just like this one that we're witness to in these passages, but nowhere ever Is there record or even tradition of a God promising a land and a title that is irrevocable as long as time exists? This is unique in all history. Well, suddenly in verse 11, birds of prey appear and try to escape with the carcasses of the dead animals. Abraham drives them away. What's the meaning of these few words about these birds? Well, birds of prey, really, we're talking about vultures, scavengers, are symbolic of death and evil. This was Satan trying to disrupt and stop the covenant because he knew full well what this was going to lead to. Okay, How often are we warned in the scriptures that when God promises us good things, Satan is going to come and try to steal them away. It's going to happen whether it be to steal the thing itself or our faith and trust in God's promises or just our shalom. Satan wants you to have what he has to offer you, not what God's already given to you. Okay. And as these birds swoop down, Abraham could simply have sat there and thought, well, easy come, easy go. Not my fault. Not fight the devil or more in tune with the modern church attitude, he could have been completely passive, deciding, well, if God wants the promise to go forth, he'll just have to do battle with that vulture, the devil. I'll just sit here and wait. Wrong. We're Yahweh's warriors on earth. We are not going to get away with not getting our hands dirty and putting ourselves at risk. It's part of what we're here for. Prayer does not replace action. Prayer prepares us for action. Abram driving those birds away is the Torah equivalent to James' famous New Testament saying, Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Now God now recites an oath. Always central the covenant-making protocol. But before he does, a deep sleep, it says, comes over Abraham. Now, this does not mean that Abraham had a long day and fell asleep. We, We see several Old Testament and New Testament equivalents to this when it speaks of visions within dreams or being taken away in the spirit, that sort of thing. Even more, it says, a great sense of dread overcame Abraham in his sleep. Matter of fact, literally it says dark dread. Let's turn to our Hebrew for a minute. The word used here in Hebrew for dark dread is kashakah. Kashakah. C-H-A-S-H-E-K-A-H. Kashakah. Now this word ought to sound a little bit familiar to us because its root word is koshek. Koshek. And koshek simply means darkness. Remember we learned that back in Genesis 1. Right. Koshek doesn't mean nighttime. It doesn't mean the sunset. It's a spiritual term. It means dread, evil, death, blindness. Kashaka is a negative term. All right. And it indicates that its source is from the spirit world. And what Folllows helps us to understand the disturbing nature of what Abraham saw. I mean, what Yahweh says in verse 13 scares the pants off of Abraham. God tells him that Abraham's descendants are going to become slaves in a foreign land, and they're going to be in that foreign land for four centuries, that they're going to be oppressed. Now, oppressed is not a throw-in word. Because slaves to Abraham were simply purchased family members. That's how he looked at it. He didn't oppress his slaves. But Abraham's offspring were going to be subjugated. And they were going to be badly treated. And it was not going to be up there in Canaan where they'd be enslaved. It was going to be somewhere else in a place that Yahweh says is a land not their own. Well, then God says he's going to punish that foreign land and Abraham's descendants will be released even that they're going to go away when they are released with great wealth. Of course, with the benefit of hindsight, we now know that Egypt would be that foreign place and that a succession of pharaohs will be the oppressors and we even know that indeed the Israelites did leave with much of Egypt's wealth. Well, Yahweh also tells Abraham that he's going to live to a ripe old age and that his clan is soon going to leave this place, not to return until the fourth generation from Abraham. And I think we'll call it a night and we'll begin to look at what this word generation means because it's not quite what you think it might be.